Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. We are excited for those folks. Baptism is the best symbol that we have as Christians to remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today we talk about that Jesus died, that he was buried, and after three days he rose from the dead. Jesus is risen. That's kind of how that goes. Chris has got it down here in the front. You can say amen if you want to, but kind of in the Christian church, the tradition is that I'll say, Jesus is risen, and you say back to me, he is risen indeed. So let's practice. Jesus is risen. Amen. We are excited about that. And what the picture of a baptism is, is that oftentimes I'll say sometimes when I baptize somebody is buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a new way of life. And then we know that Jesus, he was buried in the grave for three days. And then he rose from the dead and he offers all of us new life. Amen. Amen. And because of that, that's why we celebrate today. I was talking to somebody out on the field yesterday. If you were here for the Easter egg hunt, you saw how, how wild that got with everybody. And I was talking to some folks that don't normally come to a Christian church, and they said, are you celebrating that Jesus died on a cross? And I said, if Jesus only died on a cross, a lot of pe- everybody dies. A lot of people die a martyr's death. But he rose, and so therefore he can give us life. So no, we're not celebrating his death. We're celebrating his resurrection. That's why we're gathered together today. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for that. And so our, our theme for this morning is the theme of victory. That Jesus has victory, we've already sung about it, he's got victory over death, he's got victory over sin, we're going to see today he's got victory through even our own suffering. And so we're going to talk about this theme of victory, but as I was thinking about it, it's oftentimes in American culture, uh, a word that we associate with sports. And I'm I'm a sports fan, I know some of you, maybe you've given up on the final four now because your your brackets are busted and it's all over with, but if you watched a game last night, you probably at least, you decided to associate with a team at least for that time period, and you probably didn't pick a team thinking, I think they're going to lose, I feel really bad tonight, I'm picking that team. Like you you picked the team, even if it was the underdog, you picked the team thinking, I'm going to cheer for them, at the end I want to throw my arms up in the air, victory, I want to have that. And so I'm a sports fan, Our, our church, the folks that normally attend, they know that's true. And so sometimes I'll watch like the ESPN 30 for 30s. I'll get sucked in on those like 60-minute things that they do on ESPN. I don't even know what they're called. But it'll be like some high school I've never heard of. By the end of it, I'm like fighting back tears because I care for the people of that school so much. And, and get sucked into these things. Sometimes I do it on YouTube. I'll be watching some, you know, I'll just go online to see like a nasty dunk or something. Like who's the best dunker in the world? The next thing I know, I'm listening to somebody tell some basketball stories. And the other day, I can't remember if it was on YouTube or it was on TV, but I saw James Worthy. Some of you UNC fans, remember the old great James Worthy. Anybody UNC fans here today? All right, don't get too excited because I'm going to tell a story where he got burned, okay? But we're glad you're here. Super glad you're here. Uh, James Worthy was telling a story, I think it was, and I, I couldn't find it again, so I looked, when I was looking again, I even asked a couple of the other pastors, can you help find this story? It was Byron Scott that was telling the story, so it was from back in the day when the Lakers were good. Is there any Lakers fans here today? Sorry about that. But back in the 80s, they were really good, and they'd oftentimes play the Celtics, and the Celtics and Lakers rivalry was kind of like modern-day Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the, the Boston Celtics had a player named Larry Bird. Yeah. All right, Larry the Legend fans down here. We got some Indiana French Lick people here today. And I remember when I first started seeing it, I was like, yeah, I mean, Larry, he's no LeBron James is like what I was thinking. I was like, he's, he was a good, he could shoot the three. Like I didn't think about, he was a bad dude. And so what, what got me thinking about that was when Worthy was talking about one time the Celtics were playing the Lakers and the Lakers were up by two is the end of the game. The Celtics could call timeout. And when they came out of the huddle, let me just pause and say this. It's one thing to hit a game winning shot. It's another thing to call your shot. 
When the Celtics came out of the huddle, Larry Bird came up to the Lakers and began to tell them what he was going to do. He said, don't worry about it, guys. Don't worry about it. Here's what's going to happen. So-and-so is going to come set a, screen, set a, a pick on Worthy. I'm going to curl around down to the corner. Byron Scott's not going to be able to get there in time. I'm going to hit the game-winning shot. Guess what happens? Exactly what he said. And when it was done, I was like, man, Larry, LeBron James got nothing on Larry Bird. Larry Bird's a bad dude. And I'm kind of slow on the uptake sometimes. It took me a few days. A few days later, I was studying my Bible. I was thinking about Easter. And I thought, that's exactly what my Savior did. If you read the Gospels, what you see in the Gospels is that Jesus, well before the crucifixion, tells his disciples, he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. I'm going to be condemned to death and then talk about calling your shot. After three days, I will rise from the dead. And guess what he did? Exactly that. Larry Bird's got nothing on Jesus. Jesus has risen. A little slow that time. We'll practice a little bit later. See, that's true, and that's why I can say that the verses that we were singing about, we sang a song that had these very verses in them earlier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the greatest explanations of resurrection in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, if Jesus hasn't risen, we're, of all people, the most hopeless Christians, by the way. But Jesus has risen, and it says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so Jesus Christ has victory. The verses are true. Jesus has risen. Jesus. All right, you're on it now. But there's another truth. This world is not right. There are problems in this world. I'm going to say a number. I wonder what you think of. 911. Is it a, a phone call that you make when there's a tragedy? Or is it a date that some planes flew into a building that forever lives in infamy? Something's not right. What about the big D's of the world? Divorce, it tears families apart. Disease, it tears our bodies apart. What about depression, like a dark cloud that comes into our minds and don't even want to get out of bed in the morning? Not to mention difficulty, which by the way, God promises in the Bible, in this world you will have trouble. See, something's not right in this world and it's because of sin that there's all these problems and so you see it all over the place and then people turn to religion. Let me tell you something, religion never answered anyone's questions. And so what I'm gonna point you to today is not religion. There are many people, you come here today, and I know we all have our Sunday best on today. It's Easter Sunday, excited. You know what many people do at church? They put their mask on. So many people say, there's hypocrites in the church. It's true. There's hypocrites. Anybody that's in the church that pretends like they don't have a sin problem, because all of us that are in the church actually have a sin problem, that's why we need a Savior. But many of us who wear the mask have the deepest problems, sexual addictions, you run to drugs and alcohol. Always got to have a drink to be able to go to sleep at night. Or maybe, no, it's too, I'm going to make it clean. It's prescription drugs. Who's prescription, though? You're still ordering the pills online. Or maybe it's this one. And here's one you'll get patted on the back for. And tell me this isn't popular in the triangle. Workaholism. Oh, it's just balm for your desire for the praise of man, which will never fill the emptiness in your heart, by the way. See, something is wrong in many of our worlds today. And so the verses are true, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read you another one. Revelation chapter 1, talk about authority and power. Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to John, one of his closest friends, and says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. Behold, the living one, I died. And he's standing there with John and says, And behold, I am alive, and he's never going to die forevermore, and I have the keys, that's the authority, over death and Hades. And so Jesus Christ has victory over sin, over death, over hell. 
but do you? You see, the real question today is not does Jesus have the victory? We'll declare that. And I'll say the phrase again and you'll respond again. But the question is, does it apply to your life? Jesus has the victory, but, and here's the question I want you to ask yourself while we read our passage today, is that victory for you? And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9 today, I invite you to turn with me. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would challenge you, hopefully you've got a phone or maybe some kind of device you could use. If you pull that up in the app store, you can download the Southbridge app, and there's a copy of the Bible that's right in there. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. It's not a popular passage for Easter Sundays. Popular passages for Easter Sundays are like the one that we read with the worship team already today, where these women go to the tomb, and they found out he's not there, he's risen. Jesus is risen. Even while you're looking in your Bibles, how awesome, you guys are on it today. But here what we see is Jesus foreshadowing that he's got the authority to call his shot. What we see in this passage is that Jesus enters into the lives of real people with real problems, and his resurrection power has application to our everyday lives. And so what's been happening in in Matthew chapter 5, he starts off by confronting the religious leaders and saying, you got to be more righteous than these guys if you're ever going to heaven. He was telling the most righteous people today, you're going to hell. And then he continues to teach with authority like they've never seen before. And then in chapter 8, he starts showing, I've got authority over disease. I've got authority over demons. I've got authority over the difficulties of your life. And here we see he comes into contact with death. Look at it. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18. While he was saying these things, and so what's happening is Jesus has been teaching. The crowd's pressing in on him. I don't know if you were here yesterday for the egg drop or not. You want to get a picture of the crowd pressing in? That was for Tootsie Rolls and gum, just so you know. This is Jesus, and later in chapter 9, it says that Jesus looks out and he sees the crowd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. He sees their needs. And so all the people in the crowd that sense their need for Jesus, have you ever thought about your need for Jesus? Some of us feel self-sufficient. All the people in the crowd that realize they had a need for Jesus are pressing in. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, look, a ruler came. And he knelt before him, and so Matthew draws our attention to this guy coming. He knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead at this point. This is incredible faith. This man is desperate because he's already tried everything else. So have some of us. And Jesus rose and followed him, and when his disciples, with his disciples, in verse 20, and behold a woman, double bonus, we got two miracles in one story here. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood, her menstrual flow was probably going for 12 years, a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garments. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, take heart. And so he's on his way to heal this man's daughter and says, take heart, daughter. This is compassion. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And so here in this, this passage, just this one story, you've got two people that come to Jesus. But if you look at that story, and there are other accounts, you can read in Mark chapter 5, more details of this account, you find out the man was named, his name is Jairus. In Luke, you find out that who he's coming for is actually his only daughter. It's not just his daughter, it's his only daughter, she's 12 years old. And so you can look back at your story, and you see you've got these two people, they're a study in contrasts. He's a man, she's a woman. He's named, read all the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, she's not named, she's a nobody. He's the chief ruler, he's the highest ranking religious official in all of Capernaum. She's a social outcast. 
He's coming and saying, if you, could ju- if you, Jesus, would touch my daughter, and she's saying, if I could just touch Jesus. They're both coming because of their suffering. He's experienced 12 years of joy with his family. She's experienced 12 years of suffering that would cost her her family. If she was ever married, she's now divorced. She now lives in isolation. He's the religious elite. She's what they called in Bible times, unclean. And so whenever she came around people, she's supposed to yell, unclean. She's like virtually a leper. So they're total contrast for one another. Do you know what they have in common? Jesus. Jesus is for them. Jesus loves them. And why does that matter to us today? Let me tell you, because it doesn't matter why you came today. Jesus is for you. It doesn't matter what your story is, where you're at on the spectrum of social elite and total outcast. It doesn't matter where you're at on the religious spectrum. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And there's nothing you can do to make that not true. Jesus never made a person he didn't love. But he makes an offer, and it doesn't apply to everybody. And here in this passage, we're going to see that he, he offers victory through, not always from, through suffering. He offers victory over sin, and he offers victory over death. All three of them right here in the passage. The first one, that'll be our first point today, is that Jesus offers victory through suffering. Both people in this passage are suffering, but let's look at the man first, because that's who the, the passage talks about first here, here. And we see here that he was a chief ruler. Behold, a ruler came. We find out that his name is Jairus. He's the most powerful religious leader in Capernaum at the time. He's probably wealthy. He's associated, all of his friends, by the way, are what they called Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law. And in case you come and you think, well, Jesus was religious and they were religious, they must be friends. No, 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 no. Uh, Those folks wanted to kill Jesus. And so imagine the scene. There's this crowd pressing in on Jesus, all the people with their needs coming to Jesus, wanting their needs, but feed me, fix this, settle this dispute, help me with this argument, heal this disease. All these people are pressing in, Jesus trying to teach, but when this guy shows up, notice Matthew says, behold, behold this ruler. Everybody look, because everybody looked. And I don't know if you've ever heard stories before of like, like tense moments at church. I've heard, I think it was Jim Cymbala one time, talk about a guy who came forward during one of his services and laid a gun on the altar. And the reason why he had the gun is because he was planning to come and shoot the pastor. As a pastor, I take note of those stories. <laughs> That's kind of the tension in this moment of why is this guy coming to Jesus? Like, what's happening? So the crowd starts moving out of the way. Like, let this guy get to Jesus. What's going to happen? Is, he gonna, is this the assassination? Is this when it takes place? But did you see what happened in the passage? Look at the passage. It's not just what I say. Matthew says right here that he kneels down. Now, that's a big deal in the Bible to kneel down before somebody. You only knelt down before somebody if they were superior to you. And so here you've got the chief ruler, the highest ranking religious leader in Capernaum, and, and he, maybe before a king. All people would fall prostrate before God. And here he gets on his knees before Jesus. The word here for him kneeling down is also used elsewhere in the Bible for worship. And did he fully know that the one he's actually kneeling before here is a king? He's the king of kings. And he's the God-man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, come to dwell among us to tabernacle with us, John says, to be here, to experience the difficulty, experience the pain, to know what it's like to be in this place, enters right into our worlds. And it's the words that he says that get me. And he's got victory here. By the way, spoiler alert, I'm gonna tell you how the story ends. He raises his daughter from the dead. But the victory comes way before that because he gives them victory not just from suffering, he gives them victory through suffering. Believer, let me tell you this, and you can read this passage on your own later. The Bible says 
In Romans chapter eight, that you are more than a conqueror to many of the, the, the difficulties of life, the suffering in life. Do you know why? Because what God does is he takes the suffering and actually uses it to serve you. Do you know how he uses it to serve you? He uses it to bring you to the place of victory. Do you know where that is? On your knees before the victorious one, Jesus Christ. You see, God often uses suffering to bring us to the place where we become acutely aware of our needs. So many times, the job's going well, life's going well, kids are behaving. This is a mystery world that we live in, right? I'm talking about. We feel self-sufficient. We got this. We don't really, and we don't want to say, especially if you go to church regularly, we don't really need Jesus. We don't really need, let me tell you something, to take the next breath, you needed God. And that one too. You needed him but we become aware of it in our suffering. See, what happens is one of the beautiful things that happens in suffering is that our inability comes into contact with Jesus' availability, and that says that we're on the path to victory. And so sometimes suffering is actually a blessing in our lives because it brings us to the place where we can be on the path to victory. I became acutely aware of this about two years ago tomorrow. We had Easter services in 2016. We used to meet at the movie theater over in Briar Creek. And so instead of just getting a bigger room and opening up seats for people, and I'm so thankful that you're here if you're a guest, uh, we did multiple services that day. And at the end of each service, I gave an invitation for people to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Same invitation that I'll give you today. And so you can be thinking about that. And at the end of each one of those services, people made the most important decision they ever make in their life to surrender their life to Jesus, be forgiven of their sins, experience new life in Jesus Christ. It was exciting. It was an awesome day. I was so pumped. And the next day, I was pretty tired out. I'm studying my Bible, and I'm, the outline's not really coming together for the next message, because guess what? Sunday comes every week if you're a pastor, and so it just keeps coming. So I'm studying my Bible, and, and I decided to take my family out to dinner. And we went out to dinner, and we came back into our neighborhood. Our neighborhood's a small little area. It's about 10 houses, two cul-de-sacs. It's pretty, we know all of our neighbors, and on our front porch, one of our neighbors had given us a kite to my oldest daughter. She was 10 at the time. She's 12 now. And I told her, I said, why don't you run up there, tell Mr. Matt thanks for the kite. And so she runs up to tell Mr. Matt thanks for the kite. I didn't realize that my youngest daughter, who was four at the time, went out in the front yard and started playing with that kite. I went back in my bedroom, and I was getting ready to go work out. I had, uh, you know, one sock on my foot. And I'll never forget when my oldest daughter came running back through the door. And the words that she said still gives me terror just to think about them. She said, some man just grabbed Gracie. That's my youngest daughter. Some man just took Gracie. A guy had grabbed our daughter out of our front yard. So if you're a parent, you can imagine the anxiety, the tension that comes in that moment. And so my wife and I just, we don't even think. You just run. I just run out the front door. I come out the front door. I don't even have shoes on. And there's a guy standing in my neighbor's driveway pointing in a direction. And, and then my neighbor, Mr. Matt, standing there pointing in a direction. And I just start running. There's some woods right behind these houses. And so I just start running. I'm running through rocks and stream and I get to this fence, it's a horse fence, there's a horse farm back, back through the woods. And, and I know I have to go over it, it's my daughter, but I still haven't seen anything. And I started thinking to myself, just in a, it was just like a moment of hesitation, but I thought, if I don't get my daughter back, this is going to tear our family apart. What am I going to say to my wife tonight? And I said, God, I need a miracle. Let me tell you something, I didn't realize it really until this year. That was the moment of victory. When you get to that spot where your inability comes into contact with Jesus' availability. He's teaching. There's all kinds of people around. He's, still, he's available for this man. He's available for you. And oftentimes it's not until we're in our suffering, we're in our time of need, that we realize that we even need him. And to tell you that story, so I don't want to leave you hanging, those of you who've never heard that story, is that, long story short, lots of minutes later and lots of panic and terror, I came back into the neighborhood. There were about 12 police cars and ambulance and and the man who had grabbed my daughter had been apprehended, and we got her back. 
And so we praise the Lord for that. Yes, God is amazing. And that's victory too, but he doesn't always give that victory. He doesn't always deliver from suffering. Sometimes it's through the suffering. But it's in the suffering where your, your need becomes obvious. And that's where he's giving you the victory because you're on your knees before the victorious one. When you realize, you rec- do you know your need for Jesus? You recognize your inability. And let me tell you something, we all have an inability before Jesus. None of us can save ourselves. And I was thinking about that this week for myself. I remember well before I ever had kids or was married or anything like that, I was 18 years old, kneeling next to my bed. Somebody had given me a little booklet that outlined how you could have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there was this verse in it. It was John 14, 6. And John 14, 6, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. Don't miss those words. Nobody throughout human, no one in this room, no one outside of this room, no one can come to the Father except for through me, Jesus Christ speaking. And it was in that moment that God spoke to my heart and said, Scott, are you going to waste your life? You know, pursue the American dream, go after Islam, go after Buddhism. What are you going to pursue? What are you going to go after? I gave my son for you. And I realized my inability to save myself. See, God often makes us aware of our inability and suffering. That's victory through suffering. So he can point us to his ultimate victory, which is victory over sin. And that's what you see next in this passage. And so go and look at the woman's situation. Here's this woman. She's known as unclean. It says, behold, a woman who had suffered, and the Jewish readers would know this, suffered discharge of blood, a blood issue. She's like a virtual leper. For 12 years, she suffered for this. We find out in the other accounts, you read Mark and Luke, she spent all of her money on this. Why is she coming to, you know why she's coming to Jesus? Because that's her last hope. Let me tell you something about hope. You don't have real hope until you realize your only hope is Jesus Christ. And she's gotten to the point where she's now desperate, and she realizes Jesus is her only hope. And so in spite of the fact that she's not, even, she's not allowed to go to the temple, she's not supposed to be around people, the faith that we see here is kind of superstitious faith. You don't have to have a perfect faith to come to Jesus, by the way. The faith that we see here, it's a scandalous faith because she's not supposed to be around other people. She's got a blood issue. Anybody she comes into contact with, according to the Bible in Leviticus, not just made up rules, they would become unclean. And so anybody she touches becomes unclean. Remember her goal is to touch Jesus. Anybody she touches becomes unclean. In fact, the rule was then, if she went to the temple, the penalty she would suffer is anything from being flogged, have you seen the Passion of the Christ? Being flogged, 40 lashes, to being stoned to death. That's how serious this was. She's in total isolation. She risked everything to come and touch Jesus. And when she touches Jesus, look what happens. She said to herself, if only I touch his garment, the way that's phrased, it was like she kept saying it over and over again. If I just need to touch it, like she's reminding herself as she works her way through the crowd. If I could just touch his garment, if I could just touch his garment, I will be made well. It's the Greek word sozo. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made your imperfect, your super, even your faith that most people would say, that's not real faith. Your faith has made you well. And the word that Jesus uses there for being made well is the Greek word sozo. It can be used for physical healing. It's certainly being used for that here. But... It can also be used for spiritual healing. In fact, it's oftentimes used that way, even in Matthew, for the forgiving of sins. See, every person has to answer the question, what are you going to do with your sins? Everybody's sin. The Bible says, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So what is sin? Sin is that you, you don't meet God's perfect standard. And so everybody's got to answer that question. What, do you, what are you going to do with your sin? Who's going to pay for that sin? Somebody has to pay for that sin. It's either you or it's Jesus on the cross. Who's going to pay for your sin? What are, you, are you going to be good enough? Nobody can be good enough. It's God's perfect standard. And so here, maybe, maybe he wasn't forgiven of her sins, but we know that when he does a physical healing, it's pointing to his power to heal. 
but not just heal physically, but to heal spiritually. And if you don't believe that, go back on the passage and you look and there's another story where Jesus was teaching and this man gets lowered through the ceiling and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Well, the guy didn't come to get his sins forgiven. The guy came because he couldn't walk. And so that's why he was lowered on a mat because his friends brought him there, unable to walk. And then Jesus says, but so you now have the authority to do what's a bigger deal, forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. And that's where the crowds came from. Because this man went dancing out of this house, and then Jesus can call anybody he wants to. You know who he calls? He calls a sinner named Matthew. He's a tax collector. If you work for the IRS, we love you, but nobody loves the tax collectors, just so you know. They hated him in the Bible, too. And Matthew was one of them. And God grabs this sinner, and he heals him of his sins. And what are you going to do with your sin? Everybody has to make that decision. What are you going to do with your sin? And what even is sin, really? I was talking with a gentleman a couple weeks ago, and English was a second language for him. I spoke great English, but he didn't understand every word that I said. His name is Geronimo, and we were talking through the gospel. I was telling him this terrible news that's in the Bible, that we all sin, we all fall short of God's perfect standard. And he said, he said this is, we should be having this conversation, I want to know more. And when I said the word sin, though, he said, what is that? I, I don't know that word. What do, you, what do you mean when you say sin? I said, here's what sin is. Sin is opposition to God. And everybody sinned. And a lot of people think that sin's not a big deal. And some people are like, well, I mean, I know. The other people, they do sin. And anybody here that's not a liar, don't raise your hand. I don't want to make you do more. <laughs> We're all liars. The Bible says that if we commit adultery in our minds with someone else, who lust after someone, that's, that's as though we've committed adultery. It says that in our hearts, if we have hatred towards someone, that's like murder. And so most of us are bigger sinners than we realize that we are. But what is sin really? Sin's what made Jesus suffer. I don't know if you thought much about the suffering of Jesus on what we call Good Friday, the suffering that he went through when they nailed him to a cross. And I, think I, I mentioned that I was in conversation with a couple down on the field yesterday, and they, they asked me the question, who killed Jesus? It's a Jewish couple. Let me tell you who killed Jesus. You did. And I did. We can argue about Romans or Jews. That's about like arguing about Democrats and Republicans. It's an out there argument. Let me tell you, who killed Jesus? It was your sin that nailed him to the cross. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. That's why he suffered. And we, even, we just talk about, we even make the nails too timid. We think about nails at like Home Depot or something. They were seven to nine inch spikes. They were made of iron. They were probably square. And they didn't drive them through his hands. They drove them through his wrists. They didn't nail his feet to the cross next, by the way. They had already mocked him. They'd already beaten him beyond recognition of a human. They'd already put the thorn crown on his head. But he's hanging there on a cross, and they carry the cross over to a two-foot hole in the ground. They drop it in the two-foot hole. Every joint in his body would have popped at that moment. Tertullian, the historian, says that many men died in that very moment. They still haven't nailed his feet to the cross. He's still just hanging there. Tertullian also said, those who didn't die, many of the other men, they would go insane because of the pain in that moment. See, what is sin? Sin is why Jesus Christ suffered. Your sin nailed him to the cross. But he offers victory over sin. Because while you're his enemy, that's, Christ died for you not once you got your life cleaned up. These people didn't wait until they were ready to get to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus because they know they have a need for Jesus. Do you know your need for Jesus? See, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in our sin, Christ died for us. The Bible also says that you can be cleansed. Now, most of us don't think we need to be cleansed. We think, well, God's a gracious God. You're just talking about condemnation. You're just talking about condemnation. Here's the reality. God is a God of grace. He's also a God of justice. And that means that he can't just look the other way. That's cheap grace, by the way. I do believe in grace. This church teaches grace all the time. We've sung about grace this morning. But let's talk about real grace. Real grace is that somebody died in your place. It's not that God just decided to look the other way. 
Somebody has to pay for sin. And the justice of God was not just that your sins were on Jesus Christ on the cross, but the wrath of our Father was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. That's justice. And so you know what the Bible says? This woman's cleansed. She's made clean. Most people, that, when she touches other people, she makes them unclean. When she touches Jesus, Jesus makes her clean. And Jesus can make you clean too. 1 John 1.9 says it like this. If we confess... Confess doesn't mean we just admit our sin to God, by the way. God knows, he doesn't need a, he's all-knowing. He doesn't need a news update about what happened in your life today. He knows what happened in your life today. Confession means saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. And he hates it because it separates you from him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Not you need to be more faithful. He was faithful in going to the cross and just. His justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From what? From all unrighteousness. What are you going to do about your sin? Everybody has to decide what they're going to do with their sin. Every human who walks this planet has to decide. And Jesus offers victory over sin. Because you know why? Jesus is risen. That's true, but you're fading on me. Come on now. Third and last point is this. Jesus offers victory over death. We haven't read these verses yet. Matthew chapter 9 verse 23 says this. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and so he he heals this woman, just kind of on the way, like a delay for him. And when he comes to the ruler's house, and most of us probably aren't ready for what we're going to see next because the way they did funerals then, different than how we do funerals now, they would hire professional musicians, they would hire people to come and cry, professional mourners to help other people get them worked up and crying. It says, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and he's wealthy, the ruler is, and so it's probably a lot of flute players. The flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. Now, wait a minute. The pastor's already said she's dead. These people laugh at him. It says, and they laughed at him. Next part of the passage, they laughed at Jesus. Because they know what death is. They're professional mourners. They've seen death before. And and I could tell you about how sleep in the New Testament is actually a metaphor for death, and that's true. But I think the reason why Jesus says this here is because it's so easy for Jesus to raise somebody from the dead. Because you look what happens next. It says this. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. No incantations, no pleading, no cutting himself, no begging. Touches her. The touch of Jesus. And the report of this went through all the district. And so I think Jesus says that just as she's sleeping because it's like when you, if you're a parent and you've got a little kid, and I mean, not a teenager, okay, because they're hard to wake up. So forget that analogy. analogy. All analogies break down at some point. But if you've got a healthy, you know, a little kid, we've got one daughter, and she's like the girl from Frozen. The sky's awake, so I'm awake. I'm like, would you just go back to bed, please? <laughs> but normally with a kid, I mean, just, you know what Mark says in his account of this story? He says that Jesus comes to her and he says, little girl, get up. And she's dead. She's been dead. And she gets up. Do you know why? Because Jesus has victory over death. But you know what? This is before Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, this is before Jesus rose anybody else from the dead. Do you know what he's showing? He's showing, I've got authority to call my own shot, by the way. And so when we're talking about Jesus, we're not talking about some great teacher. We're not talking about some good moral example. We're talking about God in the flesh. He can speak creation into existence. He can make you and me out of dust, he can make this little girl get up. He can give you victory over death too. 
And that's what he was doing at the cross. That's why he rose from the dead. That's why we're not just celebrating that Jesus died on a cross. We're celebrating that the grave was empty. The tomb was empty. Your life doesn't have to be empty because your life can be filled with Jesus Christ. But you've got to come to that place of victory where your knee bows before him. And you think about what he's done all through the Bible. For Moses, he parts the sea. For Noah, there's the ark. For Joshua, brings down the walls. For David, slays the giant. For his disciples, earlier in this passage, sells the, they're in the boat. They think they're going to die in a storm. And then he says, shh. And he calms the storm. And then they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of him. Because he has power over death, over sin. And power that can be yours. That's why he was able to call his shot. Uh, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be murdered. The worst sin that's ever happened in history. And I'm going to use it for your good, your salvation. After three days, I will rise from the dead. And Jesus Christ is risen. risen Amen. And it's all true. But the question is, is it true for you? Not are the verses true, not do you believe they're true. That's not what it is to become true for you. You've got to know the risen one, Jesus Christ. And so these two people in this passage of Scripture, they're total contrast. Hopefully you notice that as we walk back through the passage. He's a man. She's a woman. He's got a different issue than she's got. He's got a a reputation. She doesn't have a reputation. He's considered the religious elite. She's considered unclean. But you know what they have in common? They both come to Jesus. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives to you today and has given to some of your hearts today. Come to me. He says it like this throughout the Bible. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this. So you know these aren't my words. They'll be up on the screen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come. That verse I mentioned to you earlier that God used to transform my life, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus Christ speaking. Some of the last verses in the Bible are an invitation to come. It says this, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, you got a spiritual thirst, do you think there's something more to life than just all this stuff that you've been promised in this world? The one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, you come. See, we've got a problem a barrier between us and God. There's something that hinders us. It's our sin. It's the sin that's within us. It's the sin that we want. And we all sin. And the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages, what you earn, what you deserve, because of your sin, all sin leads to death. is separation from God. But the wages of sin is death. But the gift, there's a contrast, but the gift of God is eternal life. God offers eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, as a gift he's offering to you. Like if I were to say to you, you can have this Bible, what do you got to do? It's not enough to know that you can have this Bible. You've got to come, you've got to take the Bible. You've got to receive that. And the Bible tells us how to receive the gift. And Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a big deal. It's not just something you say like a, a, a magic spell. To call upon Jesus as Lord means he's in charge of your life. You're surrendering your life to him like this man who comes in this passage and bows his knee before Jesus. You, don't bow, your, you bow your knee to the king. You bow your knee to God. You call upon Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a promise, you will be saved. That's rescued from your sin. Why is this true? Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's how you respond to the invitation to come and some of you need to respond today. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. I told you I would. And so here's what I want us to do. If you're a believer or not a believer, just bow your heads. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And the worship team's gonna come up here and I'm gonna be standing up here and we're gonna have some elders off to the side, but everybody else is gonna have their eyes closed, their heads bowed. And some of you need to respond to Jesus Christ this morning. 
Ask Jesus Christ to be your savior. Call upon him, like this passage said, to be your Lord. And maybe God's used difficulty in your life to bring you to the spot where you realize you have that need. Or maybe it was something I said today that you realize, yeah, I need to know what, I'm, what am I going to do with my sin? What, what, I, it's not enough just to believe that God exists? It's not enough to go to church? What do you mean? No, it's nothing that we can do because we all sin and we all fall short of God's perfect standard. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And if you believe that, and you want to call upon him to be your Lord, don't make that decision too quickly. You're going to call upon him to be your Lord. I mean, he's in control of your life. You're going to surrender your life to him? Then you can do that by, by calling upon him. It's that simple. It's not, hey, I need to straighten this up, and I need to deal with these sins, or I've got to have a perfect faith. No, you're, if you know that you want to do that, then you're ready. And I would challenge you to accept it. If the Spirit and the bride say, come, and the Lord says, come, and no one comes except for through Jesus Christ, then you come today to him by simply calling out upon him. And what, what's going to happen right now is I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to come to Jesus Christ, you want to call upon him, and I challenge you to pray that prayer with me. And so you can pray it in your seat. You can pray it out loud if you want to. I promise you the people around you that have already prayed this prayer in their own life, they'll rejoice hearing you pray this prayer. But it's not just a prayer. The prayer itself is not some magical thing that gets you right with God. It's got to be what's happening in your, in your heart. If you, if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, you believe that he rose from the dead, and you want to call upon him with your mouth, confess him to be Lord, then you pray this prayer with me. Here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to acknowledge sin. I don't want to trick you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm going to acknowledge sin before God. And so you confess your sin before God. And acknowledge belief, belief that he died for those sins, belief that he rose from the dead. And you do, if you believe that, then you, and you confess that to him as well. And then I want to ask him to be Lord and Savior. And if you want to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, then he promises in that verse I just read to you in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that you will be saved. You'll be rescued from your sin. He'll give you victory. The verses won't just be true. They'll be true for you. He'll give you victory over sin, which is then victory over death because he gives you life everlasting with him for all of eternity. And if you want to do that right now, if God's calling you to himself and calling you to come, and he might even be tapping you right now and saying, he's talking to you, you need to come. Then will you pray this prayer with me? Dear God, I... I admit that I'm a sinner. And you can say it in your own words. And some of you might even want to confess specific sin. The Lord knows. You're not reminding him of something he doesn't know or forgotten about. He knows about your sin. But say about it what he says about it. That It's been the reason why you haven't been reconciled to him. God, I acknowledge my sin. And I believe your son Jesus Christ died for that sin. And I also believe that he rose from the dead. And I want, I want to receive your forgiveness. And right now, you can say it in your own words, or you can say these words with me. Right now, I ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. And I bow my heart, just like that man in that story bowed his knee. I bow my heart before Jesus, and I ask him to be my Savior right now. 